Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. From backyard plinking to serious training to big game hunting, Airguns.com has what you need. Umarex offers the most diverse lineup of air guns, from traditional BB and pellet guns to cutting-edge rifles that fire, get this, 50 caliber slugs or even broadhead-tipped arrows. Umarex Airguns has led the way with innovative products designed to get the job done. Whether you're hunting whitetails, feral hogs, iguanas, squirrels, rabbits, or even elk or bison, umarexairguns.com is your source for the best air-powered rifles and pistols. Visit umarexairguns.com today. That's umarexairguns.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. So you're telling me, you're telling me, 9.52, 9.52 million acres of American ground publicly owned American ground is inaccessible to people who like to hunt and fish and walk around. Landlocked. Landlocked. If you added up all the acreage I own, that's 4.256 million times the acreage (laughs) that I own. It's a big chunk of land. (laughs) Dude, yeah. Yeah. Uh, How do you put it in terms of... uh, how do you put it in terms of like, you know, everybody, when everyone's trying to make something seem big, they compare it to Rhode Island, <laughs> right? If you want to make something small, you compare it to Texas, but you guys don't even need to do the Rhode Island comparison. New Hampshire and Connecticut, right? You did yeah. a two state yep. combo. Yep. Still, It's still the dinky states in the East, but still 9.52 million acres of landlocked land in America. Well, isn't Yellowstone like 2 million acres? So it's like that's five, a good way of putting it. It's like five times that size. Five Yellowstone National Parks owned by the American people, but not accessible to the public. And most of them are BLM land. It's mostly BLM, and it's like a Western deal, right? Like there's not a lot of landlocked land in the East. Not that well, listen, Easterners do not tune out because this is gonna because we're talking about your ground, your dirt here. It's just far away from your house. Well, I'm sure, but it's in the West. 
Well, that's what we looked at. I mean, the majority of it is, but I'm sure there's landlocked lands across the nation that we just haven't looked at. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Go ahead, Joel. <laughs> All right. Sure. I'm Joel Webster. I'm the Western Lands Director with uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, TRCP. I'm based in Montana. I grew up out west, and I work across the west on public land issues, so habitat conservation, but also access. I'm Eric Siegfried. I'm the founder of Onyx. We make a GPS app that helps people get outdoors and stay safe and stay legal. And stay frustrated. When they're looking at when they're land, like I, when, when they're looking at landlocked land, being like, "Dude, but it's right there." <laughs> I just can't get to it. No matter how I finagle my way around, I cannot get to it. We're going to define landlocked land in a minute here. Okay, and I'm Lisa Nichols. I'm one of the GIS supervisors at Onyx. And um, explain GIS. Geographic Information Systems, or Geographic Information Science, um, basically compiling data that has a location component into a system so that you can make maps from it or run analyses like this. Okay. And then uh, Mark Kenyon from Wired to Hunt's here. Yes, sir. Mark deals with this on a daily basis. I don't know about daily basis. Being in Michigan. You deal with it a lot. You were just dealing with it the other day. I why, are you, why are you trying to knock me down? <laughs> you got to be like, hourly, bro. <laughs> I was dealing with this like two weeks ago on my whitetail hunt in Montana. And then this weekend, chasing elk. I wasn't dealing with this all the time, but I was looking at a couple situations like that on my map using my Onyx maps all weekend. So, yeah, very well, very well aware of the issue. And then Janice Poodless. Hello. You got anything you want to add? Still here. Still here after all these years. So define landlocked, man. Like I, I, I think I feel like everybody's gonna know because one of my favorite things to talk about is uh, I like to talk about corner hopping. How it's right. That's kind, right. right how it's behind, kind of right, illegal. Right, not, right behind chew spitting. Not recommended. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. The other day I defined I, I like my two favorite subjects lately would be like different names for how one loads chew and then um, things that make turkeys gobble and then corner hopping is right up there with it. But we're, we'll get into corner hopping, maybe. Who wants to take on what a landlocked land is? I will. Okay. Okay. So um, for this analysis, we were just looking at places where public roads do not provide access to pieces of public land. So certainly there's opportunities to fly into places with helicopters. There's opportunities to access places um, by water. Um, when you say public roads, public roads or trails or anything. Well, for, just for this was public roads. Yeah, there's certainly places where you could hike in, you know, that a landowner would allow you to cross their land or that there's an established trail and there's a trailhead outside of the land. But for this per- for the purpose of this analysis, we were just looking at access from roads. Okay. Uh, quickly, what happens to that number if you turn it into that you can walk in on, across public land? It's just not um, something that we could really capture with the data well, so that's what available. Do you call, what do you call national? What do you call designated wilderness? You can't walk. You can't drive on it. It's not landlocked. We explain the direct indirect analysis. So, yeah. So um, we kind of broke it down into two different categories. So the direct access component would be like if you had a public road that would cross or intersect a piece of public land, or actually skirt alongside next to the public land where you could park your vehicle, get out, and get right onto the public land without crossing any sort of private property. Okay. Um, that's direct access. And then the indirect access component was if you could access um, a, a piece of public land through another accessible 
land. So like if you could take BLM to get to Forest Service or vice versa, um, then then we consider that indirect access. And yeah. that's not counted in this figure. Um, so yeah, if if you could access it indirectly, it's not part of this number. It's not part of the nine point five two million. And I think trail access across private land to public land with established permanent easements, which we'll get into, that's pretty rare. That's rare. It's pretty rare. Yeah, I got you. But Steve, to like to your point of can you walk across it? Yeah, if there's a road that touches any piece of that public land and it's a huge chunk of public land, we considered it accessible. As long as there was a public road touching it anywhere, you could walk across anywhere. There might be trails, but yeah, it, it's, it was considered in the, in the, well, not considered in the number of, of landlocked because, okay. because yeah, so it is accessible. A, a million acre parcel with one road to the corner, that would be considered accessible. accessible. I got you. Yep. So it's not that you need to be able to drive across it. But you can get to it. That's right. Um, so I think actually, if you wanted to look at accessibility um, in terms of like terrain, right? Um, like there could be a giant piece of land that has an access point on one side of it, and the other side of it's very difficult to access. Um, that by is you know that's pretty inaccessible. But that was not counted to this report. So I think you could actually argue that there's a lot more land than this that is inaccessible if you wanted to change the definition. But we had to create a definition, so that's what we did. Can we talk for a minute? Uh, can we talk for a minute just to help people understand what we're talking about? Uh, the Durfee Hills situation, because here you have just like or unless there's a better case, unless there's a better case study. Do you guys not like that one because it's so sticky? I think it's great. Let's and controversial. Okay, so there is a place in Montana known as the Durfee Hills, which five years ago, ten years ago, whatever it was, no one knew what the Durfee Hills were. But they've become an emblem, right? They've become like symbolic of landlocked lands in general where you have a 2,500-acre, 2,500-acre chunk of ground that has really good hunting on it, has a lot of elk on it, surrounded by lands owned by uh, two individuals. I think there's a pair of brothers that own the land surrounding this thing. There's no public access to it. And what kind of makes it, one of the reasons that makes it kind of sticky and, and, and interesting is that at some point in time, people started saying, well, okay, if I can't, access it by walking in or driving in i'm going to find a way to start accessing it with aircraft so some number of people um, maybe 30 to 60 people a year have begun flying in on helicopters or flying in on fixed wing aircraft and landing on old roads to go and hunt this landlocked area and i think on one hand they're making a statement is that fair and on one hand, they just want to get some good hunting. But there's a lot of good hunting. I think it's almost like a, um, it's not even civil disobedience because it's not disobedient. It's like a exercising of one's rights to fly in to the Durfee Hills. The way this gets even more interesting as a, as a case study is that the same people that own the Durfee Hills own a bunch more properties, including a property that is has the potential to block vehicular access to 50,000 acres of public land. And some years ago, they proposed to the Bureau of Land Management. They came and said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 
one of my ranches, which will open up roaded access to 50,000 acres of public land in exchange for the 2,500 acres of public land that you own in the middle of my ranch. And the BLM wasn't able to take the deal. Must be some big bulls on that ranch. Well, some, so when, when this ranch that allows the access to the 50,000 acres, when they enrolled themselves in a public access program, 800 public users signed up to access through that ranch. So 800 public users used that ranch to access the, the Bullwhacker Creek drainage. And around 30 people hunt this Durfee Hills section. So there was like competing interests where some people saying it's not a fair swap. The hunting opportunities aren't equal or it's not a fair swap for whatever. But anyways, the BLM, I, I think not because they were interested, but because of cost and manpower and, and other issues with, with roads and whatnot, they were not able to, to, to seriously entertain the deal. Why are you guys giving knowing glances? Well, I think the reason that deal wasn't entertained is because there was so much backlash from Mont- from Montana sportsmen in central Montana. You mean the 30 guys that like hunting the Durfee Hills? No, I mean, there was significant blowback from that proposal. What was the, I only see the, um, real quick, I only, like, without knowing the particulars, it seemed like at, at the surface level, for the, what I explained, it seems like an enticing deal. But I haven't dug into it. What makes it not enticing? I, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming to be an expert on the sort of bullwhacker deal. I do know that there was an alternative route proposed, um, you know, to, to access those BLM lands. Down oh, we've there. wanted it off canoes. Yeah. And you can also get in there if you walk a long ways from a different direction. Okay. I just know that there's some folks that are pretty passionate about the Durfees and they love to hunt it. Um, you know, some pretty good elk hunting in there. There's some big bulls on that ranch around there. And With so aircraft, I think part of it too, is that, um, there was a big, you know, legal fight over, and I will get into easements probably later, but, um, you know, there was a route that crossed that ranch that was open to the public. And then the Wilkes brothers who owned that piece of property closed it. There was some litigation over that that went to court and, um, the sportsman's community lost people who were involved in that. And so as a result that that route was closed. And so I also think that there's, um, a little bit of a taste in people's mouths. Yeah, I got you. There's another one, um, just to give people another example of what we're talking about when we talk about struggles over landlocked lands, there's a ranch in Colorado where, Joel, you and I have been there. Why are you giving a knowing glance? Am I not? <laughs> we're good. Okay. There's a ranch called the High Lonesome Ranch who's in a big legal pissing match with the county in this case where there's a county road that accesses public lands. And they're in a protracted legal battle where the, where the county gets outspent. The county already, you know, they put $40,000 in the legal fees and it's not, I don't know if it's sustainable. They keep getting outspent, but they're saying, Hey man, that's our road. That's an open road. The ranch has it gated. They're saying, no, it's not open. We got a gate across it yeah. to prevent, to prevent people from accessing big chunks of public land. So the point being, these are like battles that are being waged. There's like battles being waged around public land access all the time. And I know that you're not coming at it saying that everything should turn into a fight because there's a lot of situations where these things can be resolved with willing sellers, willing buyers. There's public money available. I don't want to act like it's all like contentious and nasty and people suing each other, but I'm just trying to raise the idea that there are little 
battles in the war over public land access that do turn ugly and contentious. And I think those battles are becoming more common as we see a shift in ownership patterns across the West with, you know, new people moving in with a lot of money who aren't from there that maybe don't, you know, traditionally a lot of these places were open, um, you know, just by knocking on the door or helping somebody out on their ranch or whatever, you get access to go hunt their property and that's changed. And so as a result, there's more and more conflict. And, um, I think, you know, I think what's going on in Colorado, I think what's happened in the crazy mountains, um, is just emblematic of what's happening in today's world. I think the intent of this project we're working on and then we put together here, though, is to really focus on cooperative solutions that bring people together to help solve this problem, pre- prevent that from happening in the first place. Can you give me a quick rundown, anyone, on if you had to say, like, generally, what allowed um, lands to become landlocked? Like, what were the mechanisms in place? That It seems like a really weird oversight, right? <laughs> well, I think it just happened by the nature of the West and how the West was settled. Um, there's a whole, you know, bunch of laws that are tied to, I mean, it all started out with the Homestead Act, right? Which in 1862 was the first one, and there were several where, uh, you know, settlers were coming out um, from the East and, and coming out here and getting their 160 acres, and they were going to make a go at it. Like, that know? was when you, like, staked the claim. That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of movies on that. Um and, you know, they, that, that's where it all began. But then, you know, there were the, the railroad land grants where there are these individual um, attempts by Congress to get these railroads to these specific areas where um, if a company went and built a railroad, they get alternating sections. So a checkerboard, checkerboarded style landscape, um, you know, alternating sections would be given to that railroad. Across the landscapes, you'd have a, you know, one section's owned by the federal government or the general land office at the time, and then the other section's owned by that railroad. And they allowed them to be corner to corner. Corner to corner. I know you guys have talked a lot about the access Oh, no kidding. So there, that's like, you can, I mean, there you can, like, vividly see the problem. Yeah. And there's other crazy stuff, too, like during the Depression. And um, there's this one thing, this one law that was called the Bankhead-Jones Farm Tenant Act, which uh-huh. I find really interesting. It was passed in 1937. And what it did is it bought a bunch of, like, um, you know, failed farms back from private landowners in places where it just wasn't suitable for farming. People had gone and homesteaded that land. It was rough and rocky, and they probably used it pretty hard, and it, it just wasn't proving. And so the federal government actually went and bought that land back. And that went back, originally all went to the um, the Forest Service, but some of it ended up going to the BLM. And if you look at, like, the, the Dakota grasslands and in North Dakota and South Dakota like that, that Badlands country, which is really great mule deer hunting. Um, you look at uh, like the High Line in Montana and, and then also the Lewistown, like some of that breaks country right, 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 right around it anyway. Um, and then also down in Wyoming and, uh, and New Mexico and Colorado, there's just you know, 11 million acres went, went back to the federal estate that were private, right? And this is all happening in a disjointed and fashion. And so as long as their surrounding neighbors stayed solvent, that piece of land in the middle became federally owned, but not federally accessible. That's right. That's right. And then there's like, you know, the notorious Oregon and California sort of railroad scheme where um, there were like 3.7 million acres made available um, for a railroad company that would build a railroad across Western Oregon, um, again, in a checkerboard pattern. And then they were required to, uh, sell that land to settlers for in 160 acre chunks for $2 and 50 cents an acre. But they found that about all that stuff, man. 
What's that? At that price, yeah, I would right? buy it all. I'll, I'll take it. I'll yeah. take it. And I think they felt the same way because they wanted to turn it into timber companies. And so instead of like giving it to settlers, they figured out a scheme to turn it into timber companies so they could cut a bunch of trees and make a bunch of money. And people- Just to have like ghost individuals purchase it. Yeah, they'd go down to the bar, I think, and get somebody to help them to come in and buy that land for $2.50 an acre. And then they'd get it from them for the same price probably. I don't know what they'd give them in exchange for it. I'm sure there was some compensation. But then they just accumulated these, you know, mass holdings of land. And then, you know, a bunch of people went to jail for it. And then in 1916, 2.8 million acres of that land came back to the General Land Office, which eventually became BLM land, Oregon and California lands in like uh, southwest and northern California. And if you look at that on the map, it's a mess. And that stuff wound up being messy and inaccessible. It's messy, yeah. And some of it's accessible because there's a lot of timber production in that country where you've got a lot of timber roads. And so they kind of cut in and out of the checkerboard pattern. So not all checkerboard lands are inaccessible, right? Especially like in in timber country where oftentimes the Forest Service will own a road easement across that private land onto their own section. And as a result, that access is sort of maintained to some of those sections where those roads exist, but not all. And we're talking about a lot more. When we say a section, we're talking about a square mile. So like if you live in one of the many states that has townships, your township is six by six. So six, so 36 square miles is a township. A square mile is only 640 acres. But what's the biggest chunk of landlocked land in the country? The biggest one that we found was 22,264 acres in southern Wyoming. 22,000 acres in one chunk. It's like 35 square miles. So without getting into names, does the dude who owns some of this, is he just like, man, um, I really like this setup (laughs) where basically you have access to a lot of land. You have no tax burden. I'm sure some dudes are. Oh, they got to be. Yeah. Yeah. Some people got to hate that this is a conversation that's going on right now. They got to be like, man, I just want to keep quiet. Enjoy my 22,000 acres of land that I don't pay taxes on. There are like five to 20,000 acre parcels all over the place that have no permanent legal public access. And it doesn't mean that some of them are Five to 20,000 acre pieces. No, just all over the place. There's tons of them. I see where you got it broken out by state where California has almost a half million. But then Wyoming far and away, three million acres in Wyoming is landlocked. It's not something you want to win at. Dude, it's incredible. So how, um, this has always been the case because like when was Bankhead Jones again? That was in 37. Okay. So we started making our problems around the time they were cutting big railroads like the Northern Pacific and stuff. Well, 1862 with the Homestead Act's when it really started and people began to accumulate chunks of land. And there were just, I mean, if you look at, you know, if you, if you hunt, right, you, you're trying to figure out like, where's that topography where I can go kill a mealy buck or whatever in eastern Montana or eastern, you know, Wyoming. And you're looking, oftentimes that public land is like following a, like a little break of a, of a stream or it's in some badlands or some coolies where it's just not good farmland or ranch land. And so a lot of these guys were, they were settling the prime land. In Nevada, they were settling, you know, the riparian areas where the water was. That's the only place there's water, and they're leaving the uplands in public. Um, The railroad stuff is a real mess in in Nevada. But, um, 
you know, in places like Eastern Montana and Wyoming, like it was really about, you know, how is, which land is most suitable for, for farming and ranching and the rest was left public and it's rough. It's rough country. And so these guys would, you know, some people would be really good at accumulating land and they get these giant ranches and they just ended up, you know, having these public parcels inside their estates. And it wasn't, it was inadvertent, but it happened. On average, it takes about 30 days for a person to break their New Year's resolution. So if saving money was on your 2024 list, odds are you're already done trying. Well, luckily, I have a 100% guaranteed way to save you money this year. Just switch it over to Mint Mobile. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or a family. And at Mint, families start at two lines. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, I'm kind of an afternoon hydrator. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning and drink a bunch of coffee, then later in the day, I'm like, man, I gotta hydrate. And then uh, I'll see some liquid IV and then I'll drink a whole bunch because I like it a lot. It helps me stay hydrated because it motivates me to do it. Now, it doesn't matter if you like hydrate to live or live to hydrate. Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks. And no artificial sweeteners, plus zero sugar in the sugar-free version. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. I spend a lot of time outside and I spend a lot of time hydrating with Liquid IV because like I said, I love it and it makes me drink like I know I should. It makes me feel great. Check it out, liquidiv.com. So what is your, um, I want you guys to explain how 
TRCP and Onyx worked together to compile information and what the goal of it was. But what was the thing that initiated the conversation in the first place? Well, Julie, you can tell your story, what you learned from right. being in D.C. so okay. much. Okay. That's well, the start of it. It is. Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the things that happened at the beginning of this administration under the Secretary Renzinki uh, the, of the Department of the Interior is he issued a series of secretarial orders, which were like directives to the different bureaus of the Department of the Interior. And so you've got like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM, you know, is the largest public land management agency in the country. They administer 245 million acres. And, and through these orders, there are a couple of them where he directed the bureaus to identify places where access is limited or non-existent and opportunities to make those lands accessible. Really? Yeah. And it's good stuff. That's good stuff. And um, what, what, did they, what did they have in mind there? Because was it looking for ways to spend land and water conservation fund money or – yeah, I think they recognize that, you know, public access is a huge issue for the hunting and fishing community. And I think they wanted to do something that was beneficial for the hunting and fishing community tied to access. And this is a pretty logical place to go. But what surprised me a little bit is just knowing that it was going to be, that it was going to be received. It was almost inevitably going to be received as adversarial to private landowners doesn't need to be i mean i think this is all about being respectful to private property owners and 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 focusing on cooperative and voluntary agreements not forcing anybody to do anything through like eminent domain or whatever this is all about willing buyer willing seller type arrangements you know i think the secretary you know and i'll give him credit for this he has been ever since he was in congress he's been pretty clear about his support for the land and water conservation fund he's been pretty good on access um, and so I think on those issues, like this is sort of a natural fit for him. I, um, but one of the things we noticed and I noticed just, you know, I've, I hunt out West, I'm from West. I've been using Onyx's technology, you know, first with my handheld GPS, then with my smartphone for years. And just like a lot of folks who live out here and, and hunt a lot on public land, you know, I've learned how to navigate public lands using that phone. And you didn't know how to use a map in the old days. Well, I think it's pretty different when... Yeah, that's that's why this, this is going to hear me out. Okay. That's why I hate OnX. Because it used <laughs> to be that you had to have special secrety skills to find how to get into places. Now, anyone. So it was like how I hated the internet. Because I was good in the library. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they made information just <laughs> available to everyone. And then I'm like, ah, man, now I lost my advantage. And OnX, yeah, it lets you... You get to walk around and look at the landscape and understand it in a large scale sense easily. That's fair. I and do it think makes you, yeah. I'm joking about not liking it. I'm just saying, like, it was like when we used to drive around with like stacks of maps trying to put these complex puzzles together of how to get into these hard to reach places. It's just at your fingertips. Some of them were hard though. Like, I just know going in some of these places where you had a lot of private and you had these small slivers of public. And you're trying to figure out, like, how do I line it up with my map and my odometer yeah. and figure out how I can hit that 100-yard shot where that public land hits that public road where I know I can get on there. And you get there, and there's no survey markers. There's no fence there's lines. There's no line fences. That delineate it. And I'm just like, I'm not going to risk no, it. No, we would bail We would bail all the time on missions like that because the minute you hit a fence that doesn't, like, line up with your understanding, I don't like to hunt looking over my shoulder. No. 
So when we used to try to do things off paper, um, it didn't give you the certainty because we, we had this conversation the other day where we're using OnX elk hunting and we're showing a property boundary and the fence in the old days, I would have viewed this fence as being inviable, right? A line fence, clearly not on the line. And then the more you looked at it, the more you could see that they ran the fence just in what looked like a good suitable place to run a fence. But the fence didn't conform at all to the property line. But in the old days, I would have been like, well, the fence knows better than me. And I would have just let the fence win the argument. And now you can kind of look and there's another way to, there's like, and, and, you know, there's an extra data point to put in there when you're trying to figure out where you're at. That's right. I don't want to sidetrack you too much. <laughs> no, so there you so are. You yeah. guys are one of the few that actually knew how to use those paper maps to, to do those things. That's why we wanted to, that's one of the reasons we went to the Department of the Interior and to D.C. to educate them on how hunters and the public are actually using technology to help access any type of public land. And if it's accessible, the public is finding a way to ex- access it. Even in saying. the case of air flight in the Durfee Hills, they, if it's accessible by some legal means, they're going to get there. Because so they know about it now. When you are evaluating acquisition and disposal of public land, make sure you take access into consideration. That was one of the big things that Joel wanted to make sure everybody understood in D.C. I, I also didn't want them to only be looking at putting in new trailheads with big parking lots and toilets, like developed facilities that are really costly. And I think... You look back to like, you know, the way you think about the way that the public accesses public lands, right? We drive up to the trailhead, we park our car, I go use the pit toilet, we might have a picnic there, and then you can hike in on the trail, right? And I think there's a lot of people who still think that that's how everybody accesses public lands. And that's, that's, that's a good point, because we even use the term trailhead in the absence of trailheads. It kind of means sort of like where I started to walk. Yep. Yep. And and one of the things that we were, I was really worried about in particular are just, you know, you got folks back in DC, they're looking at how to provide access, right? And they've got this big chunk of 2 million acres of public land. um, And they're going to be very likely trying to figure out how to like create another access point on that instead of thinking about what about this 5,000 acre chunk over here um, that has awesome hunting um, opportunities potentially. Um, but it's lower profile. It's not as sexy, but it's really um, purposefully important. And and that's something that I think this project feeds into in terms of this report. Um, but also that visit is just really trying to help direct their work. We're really trying to help them focus on the fact that they should be looking at these smaller chunks that, you know, I mean, heck, five, 10 square miles. If you could buy 40 acres to tie that to a road or buy, it in, buy an easement, you could open that up to the public. It's not that expensive. It's pretty in, actually pretty inexpensive. And that's a huge amount of land you just opened up for everybody to go use. And it doesn't require a toilet and a parking area and you know maintenance and all that. So basically, like advising on how to get kind of more bang for the buck on public access. That's right. But also to not ignore these lands either, which I think historically people haven't been looking at them because this technology didn't exist. People thought that they couldn't be accessed, and so people have been ignoring them for a really long time, and that's changed in recent years, and we're, hyper- we're trying to help drive that change. So what was the moment when, what was the moment when, when a, a, like a, a nonprofit and a tech company decide to like come together around an idea? Well, we had, a, I guess that was late 
2017. As a company, we had defined for ourselves a company purpose to give back to access-related causes because that's why what's what made our company what we are today. We we show people where you can go in the outdoors. So we wanted to give back to that. So we defined a company purpose for giving back to access-related causes. Starting started to look around, and that's when by who knows what higher power, Joel shows up on her doorstep and says, hey, I've got this problem. Would you mind coming to D.C. and talking about how technology helps people access these public lands in eastern Montana and random. But but at that point, you hadn't started to put together all the information. Right. So because we made that, we started making this presentation for D.C. and then we're like, oh, Joel, we were talking about, let's let's present like a use case of eastern Montana, how many landlocked public lands there are so we can give them an idea of the scale of the issue. And we did that and like, well, now we got LWCF coming up. Why don't we do a full analysis and uh, get the whole picture of the western landlocked public lands? So is this analysis more exhaustive than anything that the feds have put together? It's, I haven't seen anything else like it. And part of the reason I think this happened is because the feds have expressed an interest in this. Like we've been down and sat with not only with interior officials about this, the Department of the Interior, but we sat down with Bureau of Land Management staff and and they're like, we've been directed to figure out, you know, where these inaccessible lands are and, and we're trying to figure out exactly what we're gonna do here. And we're just looking at each other like, well, maybe we can help with this. Well, I don't think they necessarily can because our team has done a ton more work to actually look at the public lands, compare them with the parcel data, and they'll we'll we'll use those BLM data sets that say this is public, this is private, and they'll have all these errors in it. And we compare that with the tax records, and it says there's an owner that you say this is BLM land, but there's actually an owner on it, so there's a conflict there, and we determine that actually it is privately owned. So we actually have done that across the West, across a lot of the U.S., to make the most accurate picture of land ownership, which our customers really love. 93% is BLM land. 93% of landlocked acreage belongs to the BLM. That's right. So that's who you're primarily having a conversation with. I mean, I think there's certainly other access challenges with Forest Service land, but because of the way that like the Forest Service was established, right, with these forest reserves, with people like Theodore Roosevelt setting them aside, or the refuge system or the parks, right, those are identified areas of importance that were set aside a long time ago because people are like, these are special. BLM lands kind of happened by accident in a way, although I have to admit they're like some of my favorite hunting and fishing country yeah, there no, is. I love you know? them. I love them. Like, I, love, I really like them. Yeah. Because it's, I, I feel that on BLM land, you get the greatest sense of sort of, uh, the greatest sense of kind of freedom and also the greatest sense of, in a weird way, oftentimes like an exclusivity where there's just all these like BLM kind of like hidey holes out there, you know, like not very visited places. I think the, na- you know, the national forest is by the f- mere fact of being national forest generates some amount of user awareness, but there's just like some BLM lands you get out there and you just feel like you could sit there a month and nothing's going to change. You know, they're also great for Western style hunting. If you like to sit behind a spotter and glass things up from a mile away. Yeah. Now, am I correct that this is just federal lands you guys looked at? That's right. Do we have any idea of what the quantity of state lands might be that are landlocked? Because I've run across a lot of that, too. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so we just were looking at federal lands because um, state and local land have so many different uses. So there's a lot of times where state lands are to generate revenue for the state. 
same thing with, you know, municipal lands, county and city lands. Um, and so they might not, the state and municipal lands might actually not be for public use. Um, and so in order to do this sort of standardized analysis across all 13 states, we, we just limited it to um, the federal land for the output. Uh, but if there was a way to cross state land that was open to access federal land, we did include, um, or rather we didn't include that in the total landlocked acreage figure. Gotcha. And it's just a time thing. I mean, our GIS team's mainly focused on creating <laughs> accurate updates. land ownership <laughs> and updating the land ownership. So I, I sprung this on them after the whole <laughs> year's plan was out there and they graciously took it on and did a great job and put in extra time to make it happen. And it's really I'm thankful a, for that. If, if you had to guess where is state land at? I saw Lisa. <laughs> if you had to take a wild stab. At the total for all the, these 13, I got, God, I have no Give idea. Give me a percentage. Like, okay, here's, here's what I like to do. <laughs> Tell me that you'd be surprised if it was less than X and surprised if it was more than X. Why? I, I have no idea how to answer that. I, okay, I, if I told you, <laughs> if I told you, you know what? There's only one section of landlocked state land in the American West. Would that surprise you? That, that's not true. Okay, if I told you there is a billion acres that's of landlocked. Okay, so we're getting closer. <laughs> Now, let's say I came to you and said 100,000 acres of state land. It's only 100,000 acres. Across these all 13 states, yeah. 100,000 acres. I think it'd still be higher than okay, that. Okay, so we're getting there. Yeah. So it's a sizable chunk. I think it's yeah. pretty high. I yeah. mean, if you look at the way that the states were granted land, they, they received two sections per township. And so they're like randomly situated in the landscape. I think I saw... and I'm. I'm pulling from memory here, so I might be slightly off on the acreage, but I think Montana, the DNRC did an evaluation and they found 1.2 million acres in the state of Montana if state lands were landlocked. Um, what? Yeah. And uh, I mean, look, you think my, about let me it, check right? My pamphlet here. You've got, you've got these, you know, these, these sections, right? And it, in, was it 16 and 36? Is that, I think the two sections that of every township were given to the states. And um, as a result of that, like they're just randomly placed on the landscape. And oftentimes they'll be in holdings, right, on national forest or BLM land. But oftentimes, too, they're just stuck right in a ranch. Some of them are inside national parks, too. Um, and so it's kind of a mess. And uh, I know that um, there's certain states that are working on trying to address that issue. But it's it, the, the whole, again, historical way in which the lands were allocated has resulted in this situation. When I started whitetail hunting in Montana a few years ago on public land, I was trying to find spots like this, some decent public land. I was in a river valley where there's a bunch of state land, found some stuff that looked like it had road access to it. I was really excited, showed up there, and there's no trespassing signs on the roads that come right off the main county road, like 10 yards in. And I was so confused. I'm like, this shows public land on the map. I was looking at a paper map at this point. I'm like, this sure looks like public. So... I wasn't sure, though, called local game warden or whatever official it was, whatever office, I can't remember who I called, but turns out that neighbor, a rancher through there bought the railroad line that runs right along the side oh, of the road is that, right? that blocked all the road access to this several state parcels that were right there along the road, but just a five-yard wide railroad or 10-yard wide past easement or whatever owned now. I connects. noticed that when we were verifying some of these parcels. You know, one of the things... Um, that Lisa and her team did is they 
they flagged about 60 parcels that were big that had what they called questionable access. And so there were like identified two tracks crossing ranches onto these public parcels. And we weren't sure whether or not they had access or not. And so um, she handed that over to the TRCP team and we put this out to our field reps who then reached out to the, like the BLM and forest service lands and realty specialists. And they reached out to the County recorders and we're trying to figure out whether or not there were easements to these parcels. And it was actually um, pretty astounding how few there were. Um, but one of the things we found was also these, these crazy railroad lines like running through these parcels that separated them and stuff. And it's just like, what's going on here? And I, I was, I didn't, I wasn't aware that they actually owned that land. I figured they just, you know, had their tracks on top of it, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. So what was the process of compiling all the information and who did you decide, who do you decide then to present it to? Uh, so, you know, one of the advantages that we had coming into this, um, at, you know, as Onyx, we, we already had a lot of this data compiled for our products. So like Eric was saying, um, you know, we could have just used the public land data sets directly from the public agencies, but those are typically generalized ba- boundaries. And so to really drill down to this scale of analysis, we had to use data that had already been reconciled with the, the private parcel data. Um, so we already had that done. Um, so that gave us a finer scale to work with. And then, um, you know, the second step was to really define landlocked, as we said. You know, there's certainly places where you can access it from water, from air, from hiking in. But in order to really address this large-scale 13-state area, the western half of the United States practically, um, we, had to, we had to normalize what we were going to call accessible. Um, and, and so that's when we decided to just look at road access, and then from there, we had to decide what was a public road versus a private road. But there's no national data set for public versus private road. Most road data sets that are available um, are classified according to, um, you know, whether it's an interstate, a highway, a county road, or surface type pavement versus dirt versus gravel. So there's no classification in these data sets. So um, our in-house road data expert sort of advised that we we define a public road as anything that's maintained at the county level or higher, and then some forest service road classifications. So once we pulled that data, we were able to look at, um, you know, a road right of way standard width. And then we, we looked at where those um, road right of ways cross the public lands. And then we were able to factor in um, through using the magics of uh, GIS, the indirect access as well. And then anything that essentially uh, the road right-of-way crossed the public land, we gave it a flag. So every single record of public land got a flag as either landlocked or not landlocked. Okay. And then we had a script that, or a, you know, an algorithm that would add all that up by state and by agency. And that's how we came up with these numbers. When you, when you guys were doing this, were you doing it because you wanted to make the public aware of the magnitude I'll call it a problem. I don't know if you use that word. You want to make the public aware of the magnitude of the problem, or are you doing it because you felt that it would be useful for land management agencies to have all this at their fingertips? Both. It's also trying to help get the land trust to to help them address the issue. But, um, I mean, I think the tool to solve this problem, 
at least in terms of voluntary means of people working together, is the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which uses, and I know you've talked about this on the show, but... A whole bunch, man. Yeah, uses the revenue... Let's talk about it more. All right, real quick, uses revenue from offshore oil and gas development, um, and then there's basically, so it's a, congr- it's a federal program where it's been around since 1965, and every year, $900 million go from offshore oil and gas receipts and go into a yeah, trust fund. Back up on that a little bit, because... Offshore stuff is owned. Offshore oil leases are, are federal oil leases. They're That's not. Right. They're not individually owned. That's right. And they have to pay. The energy companies have to pay, pay royalties on those to and the U.S. government. To the U.S. government and, and, yeah, and so the Land and Water Conservation Fund, like earmarks, or gets a portion of those. Okay. And and every county. Now here's a not Western thing. Every single county in the United States of America has had a land and water conservation project. Baseball fields, municipal swimming pools, boat launches, on up to, you know, trailheads, ma- maybe. Yeah, major, major access points into, into large parcels of previously landlocked stuff. It's like the key, I mean, it is the key driver for public access. That's right. Everything recreation. And like half of it goes to the states and local governments, and half of it goes to federal programs for the most part in the recent years. Um, when talk they, about talk long as we're on this subject real quick get into what's going on with it yeah sir, sure so the program um is currently scheduled to expire on september 30th so i imagine by the time this show airs um this program will have expired and the authorization will be gone because they throw a little it, it's meant to like uh, initially it was funded and it had like decades right 25 years yeah and then then they kind of like threw it like a lifeline yeah, I got, I, and no one can even explain why it's controversial. Well, it's, it's not. It's like the one thing that like 99, 99 senators seem to agree on. It's not anymore. So on September 13th, um, Chairman Bishop, Rob Bishop, you had on your show. Yeah. Um, you know, he helped. He worked out a deal with Democrats, uh, with Grijalva in that committee, and they moved a bill out of committee. That's great. Um, it's clean. It. Uh, it actually increases funding for access acquisition. Um, it's a fantastic bill, and I know you know he was on your show and yeah, he, did, float, I, he floated the idea. It was interesting that land and water conservation fund dollars should be used to train oil field engineers. He's done the right thing here, and I yeah. want to give him credit for that as for well. Sure. For sure, yeah. And that part of it didn't make it in there. That's right, and um, they did. They did right by sportsmen too by increasing the access allocation. And let me explain something real quick. Um, so LWCF's been around since 1965. This is one of the things we discovered through this project. Um, but it wasn't until you know 2012 that they actually specifically started to specifically direct money to public access. And so what we found is is when we were putting this report together, we wanted to find some like great case studies, right, of public access being opened up with LWCF. They've only been funding the public access piece of it for six years. And so while there's some good checkerboard consolidation projects that are from a long time ago, these isolated parcels, so these chunks, like so the checkerboards are the checkerboard on the landscape. The isolated parcels are like these individual pieces that are Do you think everyone by- knows about when we talk about checkerboards? Are you nervous about that, Giannis? I think we should hit it real quick. Okay. Go ahead and hit it because you, yeah, you, you haven't done anything. <laughs> I'm just over here making sure that red light is still on. I look at it at least every five seconds. Okay, yeah. So um, Yanni's going to do a guest appearance. Yeah, imagine he's going to do a guest appearance and explain <laughs> a checkerboarded. 
what we mean when we say it's all when you come back Unless someone's it, like how'd you like that new area and you go oh dude it's all checkerboarded in less than 60 seconds that's my goal okay so imagine you're looking at a wall with a big map on it and then transpose the checkerboard on there and let's just say that all the black spots are private all the red spots are public well, in, in that sort of, in most states, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's really been defined, but in most states, you can't go from red to red. You can't hop on that corner. So that's what we mean by checkerboarded. Yeah. How's, how's that? You can seconds. only step in the red places, but you can't cross your. You can't corner hop. You can't corner hop. You can't bring your foot over any black either, even if you're only setting it down in the red. Because the lines are infinitely thin and all kinds of other issues. Um, That's right. And you can only step foot in the red if there's a public road that goes and touches it. And to even enter the red piece, it has to have a public road. Is that anything that's been broached? Is that an access idea that's been broached at all? Oh, yeah. They tried trying to get that access corner to corner. I think you're beating your head against the wall. They floated the idea in, in a number of places. A, a number of states, it's it's uneasy. It's uneasy. People will be a number of states. People have been cited for it, challenged it. It's, it hasn't been solved to really anyone's satisfaction. I wonder how much more, uh, how much of this landlocked land could be solved for simply by allowing stepping from corner to corner, which oh. seems like reasonable public. <laughs> I would say the, well, I would, the bulk of it. I would say a, a large portion of it. You'd be surprised. A, I, maybe Lisa, half. Lisa, can you pl- plug that algorithm yeah. real quick and give I'll give you us? two figures. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We've had that question a few times, just saying, like, if we just change the, the policy on corner crossing, exactly how many acres would that open up? And... Um, you know, that's certainly a data challenge right there. Of how, that's a data challenge? Yeah, it's a data challenge. Meaning yeah. challenging. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's places where the uh, the corners aren't actually being represented by corners uh, in the actual data sets. And so, um, you know, when you look at it, you know, like your human eye can kind of see that it looks like a corner. But if you zoom yeah. way, 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 way in, the, the data itself is not actually meeting at a precise corner. And so to, in order to define that, it would, it would, I mean, it's, it can be done. <laughs> it's just a matter of like, do we have the time to, to, to yeah, define like, can that? Can you really assign someone to every, to, to, to explore every section yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're trying to capture things with broad strokes. Mm-hmm, yeah. Although, mm-hmm. although I think she's pointing to the one place where you can legally cross some corners where they do overlap. There, yeah, I mean the edges oh. of the surveys. Yeah, so yeah. If you're a real, if you're a real student of the map, um, so like some surveyors screwed up, and now you could do it. Well, you when they did those township range sections, the Earth isn't square, so they put all these squares on there. Occasionally, they had to do this correction where there's either a gap or an overlap, and when there's an overlap. Why don't you guys publish like a state by state guide to the hey, overlap? Hey, hey, man, you're giving <laughs> oh, away because yeah, 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 yeah. you is, would hate us even more. This is an Onyx Pro <laughs> tip right here. Wow, that's that's good. Um, no, I've seen it both ways, but yeah, in Colorado where I used to guide, we had that exactly. We I just kept like coming up to this corner that we thought was a corner, and then we realized that it was actually an overlap of ten feet. And the next thing you know, we were just gliding over that fence. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think if you can show the map and how it overlaps, that's the law. What I think, I don't even want you guys to weigh in on this because it's going to be the kind of thing that makes you give knowing glances to each other. <laughs> so I'm just talking to Giannis and Mark. 
<laughs> what I think would be a good exercise, just talking to Giannis and Mark, to have to to put together a sort of legal defense fund. Let me back up. There's a good story about when someone was trying to clarify Montana's stream access law that they knew that they, they had a, a way they wanted to challenge it. And rather, and what they challenged it with was a group of women going tubing. <laughs> right. Wasn't like a guy shooting ducks where he's blasting his shotgun off in crazy directions and scaring people. It was like a group of young women on a tubing trip became the thing to challenge and the, the legal case to challenge and clarify some issue around stream access law. I think that it'll be good, Mark and Giannis, to establish a legal defense fund and have someone go to a place where they can they they feel that there would be a chance, do a corner hop, and then and then move it through the courts and have someone voluntarily be like, I will carry this cross. And, and if uh, if it winds up that I'm just shot I bet down, we could easily get all of our fans to chip in a couple bucks, five yeah. bucks to start this fund, and then just uh, have someone go in and just see where it leads. If you really, if you went to a state where it's in question, and just went to see like where does it really lead? If you if you really had the energy to challenge decisions, and then challenge decisions, and right. challenge decisions, eventually set legal precedent, and then. Just be interesting to clarify. Maybe it'd be clarified in a way that you that would just reaffirm the assumption that it's illegal, and then you'd be like, "Okay, now we know." Uh, back to our guests. Um, <laughs> so I I think to your point though, Stephen, like, um, see, I called you Stephen. That's all right. <laughs> um, so my mom named me. <laughs> I think that's the only way this issue is ever going to be solved is in a court. I don't think any legislature is ever going to have the courage to sort of pick the battles on that issue. I, I do wonder, though, I think part of the reason it's never gone to a state Supreme Court is I think most judges are probably unwilling to entertain it. Um, and I don't know how to set up that. I don't know how that scenario will be established, but I just would imagine, I'm not taking a position on this, but I'm just sort of thinking about a scenario in my head. Like if you go to a, a, a corner pin, you got your onyx app in your hand right and you can you, you walk up you can see the corners clearly delineated there's other markers on the landscape that make it so you know for a fact you're stepping over that um that boundary from public land to public land never setting foot on private land um and you're able to you know really demonstrate that and document that and then get cited for it and then you know go to court i think a judge will throw it out um, and so how do you actually get a case that's able or capable of of going to the top i don't i'm not yeah, yeah, yeah i don't know throw the it out on that. what grounds He's not going to convict somebody for that, you know. Oh, like he's Proving not going to put you in a situation to appeal it. That's right. Yeah, because so that, he's going to say, "Yeah, you're, yeah, you're okay. Go ahead." I, I, that, that is my hypothesis. We've heard that from someone else. Well, that said, some people in, with yeah. some uh, uh, an attorney in Wyoming was explaining that he's right. looked and he's yet to found is, is as much as it's illegal. I hate to keep talking about this, but I do like this subject. <laughs> it's a good one. As much as it's illegal, he's yet to find someone who was actually, who, who had, who, not that people weren't cited, but anyone that was actually successfully prosecuted. They get cited, but when they challenge it. Uh, back to our guests. Um, so I know it makes you uncomfortable to say that the solution is to have black helicopters fly in and people kick down the doors and seize the land 
and, and hand the land back to the American people. Like that's not what we're really after here, right? That's not, that's not the, that, that's not the way to increase access. Despite what uh, social media comments might have you believe, yes, we are supporting cooperative agreements that bring people together. What does one of these look like? I laid out the one that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Well, that would have been a, that would have been a, hey, check it out. So let me, can I finish my thought real quick from before? Oh, just yeah, about, man. So there's these isolated chunks, right? And these are like these 10,000 acre parcels or these 20,000 acre parcels. And they just started in 2012 directing money specifically to access. And before that, when they like scored projects, right? You were like, you bring a project forward. We're going to acquire this private land, make it Forest Service or BLM. Access was not a part of the consideration historically. Okay. They were looking at things like ecosystems and, you know, threatened species and clean water. And so checkerboard stuff generally got in because it sort of tied into that. But these big chunks of isolated, like in eastern Wyoming, they were not. And so we found through our research that in places like eastern Montana where the um, the Mile City Field Office, so like it's just a big chunk of Region 7, right? So everybody's heard of Region 7 for mule deer. Um, there's a pilot deer out there. And there's never been an LWCF project out there on public land. Same with the Miles City Field Office in, in Wyoming. And so... Related to access re, uh, in the, since 2012. Well, we're not even aware of any oh. LWCF projects on those public land parcels. On public, public land, land chunks, yeah. So because all in. that money was being directed to where you've got connectivity. And, and that, that stuff's really important. I don't want to like disparage it at all. And that stuff needs to continue to happen. Um, however, in 2012, they actually started directing money specifically for the purpose of access. Like saying... Meaning that you'd point out a thing and be like, hey, if we bought this 40-acre chunk that's for sale, it would open up access to this 3,000 acres of currently land. That's right. And the land- that would be like an example of what you're talking and about. And the money has to be used for that. And so this latest bill that just passed out of the House Committee, um, it has up to $27 million annually that would go just for access. And so this issue is... In terms of solving this problem, it's in front of us. It's not something that our grandparents did. You know, like the greatest generation, they were restoring wildlife. I think it's time. Open the Germans. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I think, you know, it's going to be really the next 20, 30 years is when we open these lands up to access. And this program, which is going to expire on the 30th, is what we need in order to do it. But the, okay, see, now there's a couple balls in the air right now. It's still going to expire, but the framework for an agreement has been put in place. That's right. So just to put that to bed, what needs to happen to get the LWCF funded in perpetuity, like max funding in perpetuity being the best case scenario? Yeah. I mean, I think what we need is leadership in the House and in the Senate to put it up for a vote. If they would put it up for a vote, it would pass tomorrow. But that won't happen until after the midterms. That's right. That's that is our best guess. I mean, it's very unlikely. I mean, it seems like the House of Representatives is going to be done this Friday yeah. until the election. And so we're really looking at the lame duck as the earliest time that this is likely going to happen. I mean, I'd love to eat my words. But, um, I, and I think then at that point, it's going to depend on, you know, how good of a night the Democrats have. I think if they do really well, um, that they're going to be like, well, let's just wait until Congress turns over and then we can write our LWCF bill. And so gotcha. um, I think there's, a, there's the risk of that, right? Um, but I think that there's a pretty good deal on the table and we'd like to see dedicated funding. So 
Right now, they have to appropriate it every year. So appropriators actually have to, even though there's money in the trust fund, they have to every year appropriate it. We want to see dedicated funding. So it's just like Social Security or Medicare, where every year it just rolls over and, and appropriators don't even have to mess with it. That money's in the pot and we know it's there. And it's not a new tax. No, it's not. This has been around since 65. Yeah, that's the one people start freaking out about. It's, yeah, it's not coming out of, it's coming out of there's no problems there. federal oil leases and it's always been that way. There's it's no just problem. like what it's being used for. Yeah. All right, so they're not kicking doors down. Um, there's a path forward. Does do, In your analysis, does it really seem like the best solution where we should be putting all of our attention is what are we doing with LWCF funds? You say that again, I'm sorry. In, in, in solving, in, in helping to increase access to landlocked lands, is it that, oh, no, uh, the LWCF is just one of many ways that we could begin to address this issue. Or do you look at all of the tools and the, the, the toolkit, so to speak, and it winds up being there's just like a hammer and it's the LWCF? <laughs> well, I think the LWCF is by far and away the most powerful tool and it can do the most. However, there are other tools in the box. Um, there's also state, potential state programs or existing state programs that can help you know, crack at this issue as well. And so I think we need to be looking at all options, but... I mean, you know, $27 million every year specifically for access. In addition to the other projects, they're doing good habitat work and benefit access by default, right? So the other LWCF projects still do good things for access. They just don't do it as their primary goal. And so as a result, they, the money ends up going other places. But, I mean, there's nothing, nothing even compares to this because states just don't have that kind of money. Have you guys worked with any nonprofits? Because, I mean, like, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has opened up a lot of access through acquisitions. They do great work. Yeah, they've got a whole team that's dedicated, I think, to utilize those LWCF funds in 2012 for access. So they have a whole team that looks at these projects, and and they're actually making the acquisition. Because when the landowner's willing or they have a relationship with the landowner, they've got to act on that when the landowner's willing. So they have to have this coffer of money to be able to act on that transaction. Then, over the five years, will LWCF gets approved or however long it takes for them to go through the government process of getting the LWCF funds. So they do do that work. That's an RMEF to your, to your point and to your question. RMEF does a lot of that great work and land local land trusts would be great organizations to give to. If you want to see, that's another way private funding. If we're really passionate about this issue, like hey, pony up, give to RMEF, give to your local land trust. And they're doing that type of work. And they're utilizing LWCF when it's when they can. A very dear friend of mine passed away a couple of years ago, and, and um, his family, when they resolved all of his estate, they used it to secure a bunch of uh, foot access along the Madison through a strategic yeah. purchase. It's really cool stories like that. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that the people that were looking to do that, you know, they're doing like those really annoy, annoying fundraisers. Um, on public radio and they have what's called amplifiers like someone who matches like if you want to spend private dollars for public good it's a great amplifier to buy land that provides connectivity to landlocked land because you might be buying 40 acres but you're really sort of you might be buying 40 acres as a public gesture but you're handing the public 240 acres you know, it's just interesting when people, like when individuals, like, you know, I'll chip in, <laughs> do my part. 
Yeah, I'm really curious to see how passionate the public is about this and will they be willing to donate to organizations. A lot of old inholdings too, like just have been purchased over the years where you'll find old structures and apple trees with bears hanging on them about this time of year. We have these examples in the report, like Beaver Tail, the Bear Mouth, yeah. and 30 Mile Creek. Yeah, that 30 Mile Creek is the only example we found of isolated parcels being acquired with LWCF funding. It's currently underway. And that's um, Western Rivers Conservancy who led that one. Um, and uh, they've really figured out how to use this excess money. So that's an, that's an LWCF story. These are both Beaver Tail to Bear Mouth, too, which is a Montana one that's done by, being done by the Trust for Public Lands. But, yeah, they're both LWCF-funded success stories that open landlocked lands to the public. And great success stories with cooperating with landowners and getting to the table and talking about challenge. Do you feel that it's just going to happen? That the I mean, is it like certain at this point that the LWCF will get fully funded and that it will have the that will have the money, the earmarked money for access? Well, I think we need to be diligent. I wouldn't take it for granted that it's going to happen, but I think if we Continue to pound the table and say we must have this. I think it will. Man, I've had a Helix sleep mattress for years, and man, that thing is nice. The Helix lineup, it's just comfortable. It feels good, and you don't get all like, it's not all like hot and sticky in the summertime. It's not cold in the winter. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial, and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash eater and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash eater and use code MeatEater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition 
of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. When you were working on this, did you ever look and have kind of like a holy shit moment where you saw just some little dinky sliver of land that was that was you know like if you could like buy an acre it would have some dramatic impact on access issues did you have some times like that it was all over the place really yeah yeah for sure there was some places you know just doing some quality control work after the automated process ran um, you know, we were zooming in, panning around the map, kind of looking at different um, land ownership patterns, making sure that the analysis as we ran it actually worked. Um, and we saw stuff that was like, oh, well, there's a road right there. It must be accessible. And we zoom in, use, you know, all the imagery that we possibly could to verify. It. And it's like, nope, there's definitely no way to get on there without going across private. There was a story in, the, in Bugle, the Elk Foundation's magazine about a guy that he was going to pick up some ammo or something and had to do a long, unexpected drive up in the northern part of Montana. And his wife picks up one of those, his wife or girlfriend picks up one of those like little local like wheeler dealer magazines where people sell used cars and stuff out of them. And she happens to find a piece of land for sale while they're driving. And they're not even really in the market, but like, oh, that's weird. And they go to look at it. And it wound up being... um and it wound up being a, a blocker to a bunch of public access. So that person um, helped facilitate and fund the purchase of that land, and they put in a they put in a little trailhead there for a BLM access. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and that was just like yeah, because imagine the power at your fingertips. So this is just a dude driving along reading like a classified ad in the newspaper. And identified stuff. So maybe rather than our legal defense fund for the checkered board case, we no, should no, just no, no. That's too put much together fun. a That's too much kickstart fun. for this. <laughs> I think that it would be an interesting thing if um, it'd be an interesting thing to look at the places like you recognize these places where you're kind of like these like sort of wow moments of right man, there. you're telling yeah. it's so close but not there. Yeah, and we're able to at the same time put something in place to monitor when those again like the willing seller willing buyer model to monitor when those places come up or to make to initiate making offers on those places and just see what sort of public support one would get in 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 in, in driving those dollars what does that initiation look like like so you guys brought this information to DC right 
did they do anything with it? Or they just go, hey, thanks. That was that's interesting. Or have you heard any feedback? Yeah, let me answer that a little differently, I guess. Um, so what we're trying to do is provide information on where these big inaccessible parcels are to people who can help open them up to cooperative agreements. And one of those partners, obviously, is the Bureau of Land Management, but there's also land trusts out there. And there's people out there who do this for a living where they work with landowners. They sit down over coffee. They're non-threatening. You know, they want to, like, work out a deal that works for that landowner as well as for the public and can help broker those deals. And those things take years, right? right. You, you know, you got to build that trust. And so that's how I think we want to use this information, not um, not create a polarizing fight with some of these landowners. Because there's a lot of people who believe that um, – you know, that it should be a right that private landowners should have to let them cross their land to access these public lands. Yeah, and but that, that idea is not going to get you I anywhere. know it's not, but we also don't want to, you know, pour gasoline on the fire. And I think... You know, Scotland, they have right to roam. Yeah. Well, there's, and there's prescriptive easements here, which in, happen in some places, but for the most part, right? I mean, you've got to get... What's a prescriptive easement? So, and this is something that's, you know, playing out in the crazy mountains right now, where you've got... There's not a prescriptive easement there, but you have checkerboard land, um, historic trails that have been open to the public for, you know, 100 years or whatever. And each state has its own set of laws. But if you can prove like through sort of regular and continuous use and other sort of conditions in a court of law that you've used that for a certain period of time, then you can get theoretically an an easement. Um, But it's a pretty contentious process. And it definitely, um, you know, puts people pits people against each other because you're trying to codify a sort of loose understanding. Yeah. I mean, there's a historic use there and there's never been any effort to purchase that or sort of get a donation of that use, like a trail or a road. I mean, historically, right? Like the BLM or the forest service, you know, did and should have been, um, acquiring easements across private land where they actually approach a landowner, they purchase that route they get a, you know, whatever, right away, a 60-foot right away across that private land. And then in perpetuity, it's recorded in that, in that title um, or that deed or whatever that, um, that that's a public route. And in some of these places, they never did that. And so people were using them for 100 years. That place changes hands. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, we don't like you coming on, on our property um, for various reasons. Some of them are probably legitimate. But, you know, it, obviously people have been using that for a long time. And so um, it creates a lot of conflict. And... That was one of the things, too, that, you know, I think not only acquisitions are important, but we need to really be thinking about how we can secure access across these trails and roads. Because one of the things we looked at, especially when we were doing some fact-checking on these big chunks, is some of them have existing routes across that private land on the public, and the public's currently using it, but there's nothing in law that protects it. Mm. And so this is, we're kind of at the beginning of what could be happening with access being shut down. Um, and the crazy mountains are just a symptom of what's to come. I think there's a potential risk with that. And, um, and so it's really important that I think there's money on the table that people can, you know, identify where these important access areas are, where we actually have access, but it's not guaranteed. And how do we maintain that access? And I think buying, um, you know, a, a, an easement across that property is how we do that. And it's a lot better approach than waiting until somebody decides they don't want you anymore and, and it wants you there anymore and it goes to court. I mean, that's pretty ugly really. And, um, and so, I mean, that's something that, you know, we've really tried to bring attention to and something we found to this project. It's actually kind of frightening. 
um, how few easements there are. You mean things that people are enjoying now? That could be taken away tomorrow. If, if, and I don't know what the situation is, but I imagine there's a lot of private landowners that think that those are public routes and that there is something recorded, but there isn't. And if they became aware of that, then um, they might close it. And so uh, it's a delicate situation. Yeah. It's frightening to think about losing acreage and, well, we're sitting here talking about all the ways right. to gain it. Well, and I think some of these parcels that we've flagged as being large parcels, some of them have some public access, but the way that we um, defined the landlocked is, is if if it requires permission from a private landowner, then it's considered landlocked. And so if it's enrolled, like if that private land's enrolled in like a state walk-in access program, like Access Yes in Idaho or whatever, that, that gives you access to that public land, it's 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 temporary access yeah, right it's pr- not permanent pro- provisional so, and temporary so it's still landlocked in terms of when it comes to permanent access and we also found some places where there is some existing public use across private land where those landowners continue to allow it um, but there's nothing there that protects it tomorrow do you guys feel like you'll so, so you did this collaboration and and took this idea and produced a report and have presumably raised a lot of public awareness um What's next? I mean, is this, do you guys walk out the door now and go your separate directions and never talk again or? No, it's just a start. <laughs> we continue to work with the BLM to make sure they define those easements, like where, where are your easements, where are your easements not, and at least have a data set that says these are our easements, here's where we don't. And then we can combine that with our data and then say, hey, we should probably look at this piece right here. Who knows the landowner, who the landowner is going to be in the future and we need to maybe secure that access point. Yeah, I forgot to mention the federal agencies oftentimes don't know where their easements are either. Um, so we're trying to get that standardized and fixed. I think one thing too, we've had a lot of interest from the land trust community. And so, um, you know, I have been talking with them about some specific parcels that are fairly big. But we, that's one thing we're talking about too, is how we can provide them with some information on, um, you know, the most sizable parcels that, we think should be a priority for access acquisition that they can then go through and screen. But like, you know, every parcel over so, so big a size or whatever, things like that we're talking about. Uh, at OnX, are you guys, is it surprising that, that you in some way, not transitioned, but, but added on, like, like originally you were just trying to describe the world, right? You're describing the world as it is. And that led to a situation where now you're trying to um, provide, you know, you're inviting the idea of change, right? You're, you're looking like, here's how it is. Here's how it could be. Here's how it should be. Is that a tough decision? Like to go in that direction? Uh, I don't think it was tough. Just to my points earlier, like we want to be able to give back. That's what made our business, you know, showing people here's how, here's where you can access and here's the public lands, here's roads across public land. You can park on that road and go walking. Um, so we, sh- like you said, we show people where you can access them. Now it makes sense to give back to making sure they keep securing those places where they can access. So it's natural. Cause you view it that, um, it's all in service of your customer. Yep. Yeah. That's it's it's all in service for helping people get outdoors and have a great experience. Yeah. It, it's good customers. that it, it's good that you're doing that. I hope it doesn't um I can't see it causing any trouble for you. 
Yeah, there's a little, I mean, we have our landowners are our customers and obviously the public are our customers and, and we want them, we, we believe in the cooperation of the two groups to come together and we don't want to see anything to Joel's points of forced forcing landowners to do anything they don't want to do. Well, there's not really a mechanism for it anyway. I mean. Yep. Nope. Landowners have rights. We I've never that. heard of an eminent domain project to, in order to give, to open up some access. Right. No, but it's a lot of folks who don't know what the law says and they imagine the worst. Yes. And there's people that don't like to lose battles. And I think that this will be the last thing I'll say on, on the issue, but um, if you look at, you know, I read this piece in Outside not long ago. I was looking at some stuff along, I think it was like the Russian River. I think it was the Russian. That there was, you know, for everyone's memory, you could canoe the river and get out on the beaches and have lunch. And that was just how it always went. And then, like, the, a new class of landowner came in and they had an enhanced awareness of not what's happened but what they could do. And it emboldened some people to be like, you know what? I'm going to, sh- like, I could make a case that I can shut that down. And then that idea became infectious. And so you had this river that had once upon a time just been like, and people were shocked to learn that it wasn't actually this way, but someone that had the time and the money could come in and begin challenging public access and, having some legal wins or at least clouding the issue enough to create the the necessary level of uncertainty to push people away from using public resources. The story they fought that the story they follow, the specific story they follow in the article, the guy winds up losing. And in fact, he was chaining off a beach that was not his to chain off. But it's kind of like, I think that that's the way in which these things get tested all the time is you sort of, you brought this thing in the crazies too. It's like always been how we do it. And then at some point in time, someone comes in and starts pushing and prying on that a little bit to see where it leads. And that can lead to access loss. So I think that clarifying the stuff and, or I use the word like codifying and clarifying some of these issues is probably pretty important too, just to head off future dispute. That's right. And information's becoming way more available every day. And so I think, because the internet. That's right. The and damn internet. It is, which is an amazing resource. <laughs> but I think it also informs people of things that they can do that maybe it's not necessarily in the interest of public access. Yeah. And so um, we need this money now more than ever to maintain and secure and open access because I think the longer we wait, the harder it's going to get. Yeah, professionally, where I'm at, is when I look at an issue, I try to be like, what's in the best interest of hunters and anglers? And that's how I make a lot of my decisions in life. It doesn't mean that I don't understand both sides of it. It's great to have, uh, you know, it's great to have exclusivity. Like, I, I can see that. I understand it. I could articulate the viewpoint. But I generally look and be like, what's in the best interest of, like, the broad spectrum of hunters and anglers? And when I look at that, when it comes to access, I'm generally like, generally, I believe that there should be more access, enhanced access. That's my general goal in life is to see that happen, realizing that within that, there will be some contentious moments and some unhappy people. But that's generally where I'm going to 
lean um, on any of these case-by-case scenarios that come up. What you got to say about all that, Giannis? I like it. You did a good job on that checkerboard deal. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, when you think of the revenue that's brought in from the outdoor recreation industry and you think of like rural communities, if you can actually make trailheads and open up outdoor activities for some of these uh, public lands and you're going to see a benefit to the community in general and and you see the numbers like 887 billion, billion with a b billion dollar industry it's getting close yeah it's, it's getting close stuff. to being the outdoor industry is getting close to being a trillion dollar industry wow it'll get there no oh, yeah <laughs> absolutely people have to start paying attention to that stuff that it's a huge sustainable economic driver. That's right. And people being able to go outside yep. is economically valuable. And 72% of Western hunters use public lands for their access. And you think about the fact that there's some of these places where, you know, a quarter of the lands are landlocked. Just think about all that missed opportunity. Big and also, giant box is hiding out there. I, you know, we were talking about that. It's like, ooh, look at that coolie on that parcel. <laughs> I bet you there's <laughs> some bucks in there. <laughs> One of my, uh, this is early on X days. I remember driving along one time and just like happened. I was driving along with my buddy that passed away a couple years ago. We were driving down the road. Um, and I had to like look out. We're going turkey hunting. One place I happened to look out. And I'm looking like we're crossing this kind of coolie. And uh, I looked out and saw a turkey. And I'm like, oh, a turkey. And I remember someone going like, it's public. And just like slamming on the brakes. Because you know? <laughs> like the rest of your life, you just drive bass. But now you drive around that thing open on your GPS or wherever you got your phone. You just drive around going, oh, yeah, look at that. Look at that. Oh, wow, I never knew that. That little corner comes up and hits the road, you know. And off you go. Yeah, that's what we were trying to make sure everybody understood is that most people probably think when they think accessing public lands, they're thinking trailhead, they're thinking like this parking area, but that's truly not the case anymore with technology. All you got to do is drive down any road in Western United States, heck, the whole United States. You could be driving down an interstate and not realize the public land that comes and touches there that you can technically park on the side of the road and start walking. It's the nooks and crannies, man. The nooks and crannies. Yeah. We've gotten a lot of emails from guys over the years talking about all the nooks and crannies they discovered right in their neighborhood they didn't know about. Yeah, we got a lot of emails from people that are like, oh, I used my paper maps and you figured this spot out, and now there's more people here, but oh, really? they're still happy about it. Like, oh, I found another spot, so not a big deal. I used yeah, I found, I found, I found three spot. more because I'm ambitious. Yeah. And as the rest of the world has less and less of this and just becomes more and more developed, the more we have this stuff and save it, I mean, I just think that like the economic value of it, we can't even foresee what it's going to be like in a couple of generations. We look at it as a spot. It's like, oh, it's sagebrush coulee where you can find a big buck. I might go there two to four weeks out of the year. There might be someone that flies over from Japan in the middle of July just to walk out there and go, this is the American West, and that's pretty cool that I can just walk off this road and walk into this country. And that person's air flight and then the Uber ride and the you know all that stuff, just like, it's, yeah. We just don't know how valuable it's yeah. going to be. No, that's the point I'm always trying to make when I'm talking about um, land, habitat, preservation and stuff is uh, people are always asking, like we were just talking about, oh, it's a trillion-dollar industry. 
like people are always asking that like it has to justify itself economically that somehow wildlife habitat and it's like and i'm glad people do it because it's to some people it's the only thing they understand it's the only thing they understand is they got to apply dollars to it so you have mm-hmm. to play their game mm-hmm. and be like oh you want to talk dollars yeah i welcome it dude let's talk dollars because there's some serious dollars at play here but on the other hand, you're like, well, yeah, but it's it's not quantif like the value of it isn't quantifiable that way. But in terms of if you do go and play the dollar game, the thing that I wind up trying to express to people all the time is we don't know where this whole thing is headed. But when you look at globe, like just the global environment and, and global news around habitat, you're not reading a lot of stories about all this new habitat that's being created every day. I've yet to read one. Every day, it's a every day there's a net loss. Every minute of every day there's a net loss. So in forecasting out the value of I'm not even talking pristine, of open, semi pristine, publicly accessible patches of undeveloped land, you cannot anticipate what that's gonna mean in one hundred years. If you want to just talk dollars. And with, it's shallow existence to be one that can only look at life through, through dollar bills, but there are those. Yeah, out they're there. out there. Got any concluders, Yanni? No, that's it. Mark Kenyon? I'm just glad you guys did this. I mean, it's, it's something that, to Steve's point, I don't want to be knocking you down like you said at the beginning. I was just <laughs> dealing with this very issue two weeks ago, literally trying to hunt bucks, in Montana, had this public land I wanted to hunt, couldn't get to it, thought I had permission to cross the private land to get to it. Then a week before the hunt, found out, oh, no, I can't. Now I'm scrambling. Well, what, what, what happened there? Because of the railroad deal. That was three years ago. Oh. So every time I hunt Montana whitetails, I'm dealing with this, I guess. So I had a piece of landlocked public land. What about the Dakotas? You don't run into this in the Dakotas? Uh, in this case, I didn't know. Huh. There's quite a bit of it, though, on the western side. Mm-hmm. So go on. But yeah, so I so I had found this piece of public, looked great. It was on the back side of some private land with, with food on it, al- alfalfa fields. And I thought I could access it publicly. Turns out that there's like gray areas around if you can use this river to access it or not. So I was like, okay, I need private land permission to make sure this is golden. Had that permission this spring. So I was going to head back out this year. I was like, all right, I'm golden. I'm going to go on for this hunt. It's going to be great. And then the week before the hunt, I called the private landowner just to double check on it, just to be safe. And he's like, oh, no, I got family coming out. When you're like, you remember how you were saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm lost. I, I have nowhere to go. It's a few days before the hunt. So I was going to drive out there and use my Onyx app and just drive up and down the roads trying to look at some new spots. And so much in this drainage or this valley that I was hunting, almost all of the public land that would have whitetails on it, which would be along the river, was landlocked. So many pieces of landlocked public all along there. So then I'm like, okay, well, I just need to start knocking on doors to try to get permission to hunt the public land. And luckily, I stopped by the landowner's house one more time, just hoping maybe something would change. And after a nice two-hour conversation, something did change. And I did get that permission. And he then says, you know what? My family isn't coming. I was lying to you. I don't think it was that. I think it was more so like maybe the date range is off or something. And he's like, ah, yeah, so-and-so probably won't be out until next weekend. I think this. I feel like, well, I haven't been there to talk to him. I feel like it was way off, and he was like, it's easier to, it's less, is friction a word? Uh, I don't know. It would cause Fra- less friction. 
it would, yeah, to be like, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Then it's like when people say to me, like, hey, man, in a year, do you want to go do whatever? I'm always like, yeah, man, great. Right? Yeah. Then when it's a month out, I'm like, oh, man, what did I say? Uh-huh. How did I make that happen? I think then when you were coming, he's like, no, no, my cousin's coming. Then he met you. And he's like, this guy's all right. Okay. You don't think that was it? I don't care how it happened. I'm just <laughs> glad it happened. <laughs> I certainly appreciate it. But I mean, it was. So that, that, that big white tail buck you got. Public land. Near this place. Yeah. That's where it killed it. Really? Yeah. But access I, through private access by a river, so that's a whole weird thing. But it should be—it's a public river. Like the stream access laws allow me to walk it and fish it, but to be super safe, I also had to get permission to do that because I was accessing this public the other river to hunt. And I've heard people saying there's some weird things around that. Have, we'll have to pick this up later because I've never—I don't—I don't. Can I don't, you explain that, Joel? Yeah, sure. I can. That, I can in Montana that, if you want me to. I've been trying to get clarification on this myself, and I can't this get it. This is something I have never heard of. So never. I know in Montana, you know, you're allowed to use, you know, below the high water mark for fishing, but you're not, and you're allowed to use it for waterfowl hunting, but you're not allowed to use it for big game hunting. And so if you go below the, below the high water mark and walk up a stream to access public land with your rifle over your shoulder, you're technically trespassing. Um, there's an exception to this, though. No, that once you jump out on the land, you're fine. You're not supposed to cross that private land, even if you're below the high water mark. That I have been told, though, the way to get around that is to bring your fly rod or your fishing rod or whatever. And when you leave the public land and go down um, into the stream, you walk with your gun packed up in your backpack or whatever, and and you fish your way up the stream. When you get to the public land then you can lose your fishing pole and grab your gun. And I'm, I, getting, and I'm, getting, been, I'm getting uncomfortable because I feel like we're entering into an area where something's not right. I've been told by a game <laughs> warden, I've been told by a game warden that that's how you do it legally in Montana. But you certainly can float down. That's a, one of the it's access just, methods that we talked about at the Department of the Interior. You can float down the river to a piece of public land and get out. You're just talking about like being on the river, waiting. walking the yeah. high water mark. So I think about what you're saying. Think about what you're saying. Let's say I'm on the Mississippi River. Okay, and I'm floating down the Mississippi River, and on and I'm in you know wherever Mark Twain's old stomping grounds, floating down the Mississippi River. And I got private land on each side, but then all of a sudden, whoop! Here I am at the I'm down by the Daniel Boone National Forest, and I hop out of my canoe and and go hunt. Be like, oh no, buddy, because you pass through private land in your canoe, you're now ineligible to access public property. So it's a state law issue, first off. So I don't know what's going on down there. Um, but I, I, what I'm referring to is somebody like waiting. I, I, I don't know how that changes if you're in a boat and you do not touch the bottom. Okay. But it's, every state's access laws are different. Every state's stream access laws are different, which is why we stayed far away from that, right? In Colorado, Wyoming, um, you cannot, with the exception of maybe a couple counties, you cannot... Um, they don't have a stream access law that, that, you know, favors the public. It said it's, you know, the landowners are in control there. And so it's different in every state, but yeah, in Montana, some states you can't set an anchor. That's some right. states You can't hop out of your boat. That's right. And so in Montana, as I understand it, if you're going to walk down the stream through private below the high water mark to go big game hunting, you must fish while you are doing that. <laughs> Dude, okay. I was told the same thing. I talked, a game warden said the same thing, and I thought that was so bizarre. But 
yeah, I didn't want to risk anything, so I just I'll just get permission. That'd be a great episode, Steve. It, it would listen. You, I don't know. It's not going to be a whole one, but it, it, listen. First off, we're going to have a thousand emails. Not yeah. a thousand. We'll have a lot of emails. <laughs> we'll clarify it for the next this podcast. Will, this, this will not go unclarified <laughs> because I'm really struggling with what I'm hearing right now, but we will. But Joel, we will and I am not, back. and I am not a certified uh, game warden. So no, and you have please present, verify this. And you haven't presented yourself. Yeah, you have not presented yourself as a subject matter expert on this particular subject. Particular so please, side note that Mark Kenyon <laughs> so innocently raised. Please verify it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you because all you just said extra safe. You're being extra safe, which is always smart. Which is a smart way. It's not fun to hunt looking over your shoulder. No. But to tell you the truth, it was it was a little frustrating to me to have to do that, you know, to see there's this public land right here, and then there's a public stream access law that says I should be able to, that that's publicly accessible via that route. I could fish it. I could float it. It was a little bit confusing to me why I couldn't walk it to hunt. Yeah. So, yeah, and it is what it is. I'm glad I could get in there some way and hunt it, and I appreciate the private landowner very, very much. Um I appreciate the public land, too. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Kenyon, Wired to Hunt. You got any concluders, Eric? Just on that point, I mean, in Montana, fish, if you can put in at a fishing access site, you can float down, and then you see a piece of public land, it's touching the river, you can get out and hunt it. Now, Joel agrees with that, but he's just talking about you're actually walking in the riverbed. So just to clarify that. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm tracking. Okay, gotcha. So, so I could have... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about no, that. Please, please go ahead. It's Montana. Please go ahead. No, no, it's good. So I could <laughs> have taken like a little rubber, bo- yes. little rubber boat, rafted, no questions asked. Yeah. So I would just uh, encourage listeners to reach out to their representatives and tell them their, their support for LWCF. Yeah. Yeah, don't you think? And then uh, I would also encourage listeners, if they're going to look into this a little bit more, go to unlockingpubliclands.org and read through the full report, read through all the assumptions. Oh, that's where all this is? Yep, unlockingpubliclands.org. Oh, okay. TRCP website. And, uh, yeah, you can read through the full report, read through all the assumptions, and then that might answer some of the questions you're tempted to throw out there. Yeah, we put it up on the yeah. – we put up links on, on themeateater.com. Yep. And, and other places. But yeah, unlockingpubliclands.org. Is that right, Joel? That's right. And there's actually additional resources on the website um, where there's a few more details that break it down by agency in each state, as well as identifying the acre to the largest parcel in each state. And to Eric's point about contacting your um, congressional representatives, there's an action page there, so we make it really easy. You can look at those findings and then send a, an email directly to your decision makers because I think we need to be continuing to point out the um, importance of this issue and the need to reauthorize the Land and Water Conservation Fund in, in order to get it done. Yeah, when you send your message, just be like, enough already. Exactly. Uh, Everyone knows where it's going. Just get it there. It's expiring, like, this week. Yeah, pretty quick. You got to, is that your concluder? Um, I'll just say that, I mean, the one highlight of Land and Water Conservation Fund not being reauthorized permanently three years ago is I got to work on this cool project. And um, I'm pretty excited about this. I think it's it's been a fun project, and I just want to say thanks to the Onyx team. They not only make a great product, but you know, they're a bunch of good people too. Um, and hopefully this this uh, this report is you know put to use, and, and after LWCF is reauthorized, you know, we're able to start 
chipping away at this number. Yeah, knock it down to knock a couple million acres off it. That's ambitious. Yeah, but I think it can be done. And I think, I mean, LWCF is like the big tool, right? But there's other things we can be looking at too, and I think we're going to continue to investigate that. The image selection on the front of your report, the print version, is a provocative image. Because it's a mug who's walking through the woods. He's got his rifle. He's all ready to hunt. He's staring at his GPS up against the barbed wire fence. Is he thinking like, I was going to jump and run? <laughs> <laughs> or is he, is, you know, you just don't know what's going through his mind, man. I like that picture. He's confident. He's looking at his GPS. He knows exactly where that boundary is. Yeah, he he's like, oh, he here, finally, I'm here. This is my public easement. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe there's public lands like 100 yards away. That, I, that's what I see is him being like, oh, man. No, he was. What he's saying is, "Oh man, this I saw that huge deer over there five years ago when I had my paper maps. It's actually BLM across this field." Yeah, what was I thinking? <laughs> I could have gone and gotten it. We've Dude, heard those stories miss a lot. Out. Dude, did I miss out? If I'd only known the truth. Yep. You got the, uh, was that was your concluder? Yeah. You got a concluder? Uh, just more the same. You know what a concluder is? Yeah, uh, I yeah gathered. I, I got it. I think <laughs> I think I got it. <laughs> Uh, just let's keep the pressure on for LWCF getting really? reauthorized. So you've come to, um, you've come to admire the, the tool. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool to get to work on some of these inset maps. Um, you know, our, our analyst who really did the, the groundwork here, uh, Brian Tut, you know, we, we went back and forth, um, and then we discussed things with Joel and Randall and, uh, you know, we were really drilling down into some of these areas to to produce these inset maps, and so yeah, it it it, it kind of brings the story alive. Yeah, that's so important for people mm-hmm. to see like the little examples. If not, you just get lost in these huge numbers. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. Really make sense. Yeah, and I mean, you can see the pretty picture, and and you can see the pretty map, and I think uh, it together they they tell the story, and uh, so I, I would encourage people to go to the website and actually take a, take a peek at the report itself. I, I got it. I got a little, I'll do that. I got a little anecdote for you here, just real quick based on the inset maps that Lisa mentioned. So on this 30 mile Creek one, we actually found a 40 acre parcel that's not on the BLM maps. And one of the things that we kind of uncovered through this project is all these emergent findings. You're like, Whoa, you know, like where did that come from? And um, this is one of them. So, on the beaver tail to Bearmouth example, there's this Department of Transportation example. And, and we were trying to figure out, well, how are Department of, Department of Transportation, Montana Department of Transportation lands managed? Are they open to the public or are they closed? Like, are they managed like DNRC lands? And come to find out, yes, access is the same between Montana DOT and DNRC lands unless posted otherwise. However, in, in talking with the Montana Department of Transportation, they're like, yeah, there's these parcels that we own. We bought in the 60s and 70s. We don't even know we have them. And, <laughs> and people call us now and then asking to buy them. And that's when we realize we have them. And, and then after that, <laughs> after that, we were working on this 30-mile deal. I'm like, which is Oregon. Which is Oregon. Like, look, there's another 40-acre parcel of BLM. And so I don't think that problem is limited to the Montana Department of Transportation. Like, there are um, you know, some errors in the data. But that's one of the cool things about 
you know, with what Onyx has done with their technology is like looking at this county assessor stuff and comparing it to private lands data is they've actually uncovered some of those parcels that aren't on your standard public land map. And that was kind of a fun little thing to so discover. So BLM land that no one knew was BLM land. Well, I'm sure somewhere in some plat book, right, yep. in the basement of a building in Portland, it's recorded as public. But when I think when they probably turned it into maps, it was missed. I see. Yeah. And and so I'm sure that um, it's recorded somewhere, but you know somehow when it was public users w- didn't have a way to be readily aware. Yeah, exactly, of it. exactly. So anyway, um, yeah. So check this out. Go to unlockingpubliclands.org. Look at the findings, but also be sure and send a letter to your decision makers to reauthorize the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It's our most powerful public access tool. See, that's gonna be the last thing anybody says. I couldn't let it go. I had to say, yeah, I feel like I'm not doing my job. <laughs> I appreciate but that. That is the last thing anybody says is what Joel just said. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Besides what you just said. Yep. Oh, wait. <laughs>